You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and fully loaded chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at Fish and wildlife.org that's fish and wildlife.org ladies and gentlemen happy thursday welcome to another episode of the average conservationist podcast and i'm your host marcus ewing Today on the podcast, I am joined by Brian Cooper, and Brian is a newly appointed committee member for 2% for Conservation, and Brian is doing a ton, and I mean a ton, of awesome work uh, in the field of conservation. Uh, Brian and I kind of kick things off talking about what he does uh, for a living, uh, which is actually really cool, and and he goes into some pretty good detail um, about what what he does uh, with his business, Redtail Consulting. Uh, down there in Georgia. Uh, from there, we, he kind of tells some stories about you know how he really got introduced to the outdoors. Um, a very uh, funny story, really, in hindsight, uh, about kind of what piqued his interest into the outdoors, uh, nature, and really how everything kind of coexists together and how things 
uh, in nature need one another to survive and to thrive. So really cool with that. Uh, and then obviously from there we get into um, you know more of the conservation side of uh, conservation side of things and really what Brian is doing down there in Georgia with uh, his different work. Uh, through Ducks Unlimited, um, NWTF, and then as well as uh, the positions that he holds on a few different boards uh, with Partnership for Conservation and then the Southern Conservation Trust. Um, you know, Brian has a really, a really good outlook on conservation and how uh, it's so easy for each person uh, to really do their part and, you know, how all of these little changes, these little acts um, to, to better the environment to better, you know, wildlife, the outdoors, how, you know, if everyone just does their part, it can make this huge monumental impact and really shift um, the way things are headed. So episode 59, Brian Cooper, uh, enjoy. But before we get into the episode, I want to take a minute and tell you about our friends over at Wild Rivers Coffee. Uh, Sammy and Marshall, who I would just like to say uh, real quickly, congratulations on the newest addition to their family. Uh, Super happy for them. Um, but Sammy and Marshall are also the owners of Wild Rivers Coffee. And if you guys have not, please, please, please go out and give this coffee a try. It is awesome. Um, since I had Sammy and Marshall on the podcast months ago, uh, before they ever became partners or that was ever a topic of conversation with them, I have been drinking their coffee. Um, I have, I know for sure, switched some of my family over to drinking the coffee as well. Uh, it's that good. Um, and you know what they're doing in terms of giving back to conservation and what their kind of mission and their goal is and their whole outlook on wildlife and the outdoors is awesome. Uh, at Wild Rivers Coffee, they're roasting in small batches, so they ensure that your coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Wild Rivers is also a proud partner with 2% for Conservation, and they believe in preserving the wild places and the wild things that bring all of us so much joy. That's why with everything they sell, a portion of the proceeds are being donated back to conservation organizations that are near and dear to them. So conservation organizations like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, Ducks Unlimited, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and Trout Unlimited. Um, Go to wildriverscoffeeco.com to be sure and order uh, your fresh roasted beans. They've got super cool handmade mugs, uh, some really cool merchandise. They've got a ton of different excuse me, a ton of different accessories uh, that you can use for grinding your own coffee, for pour over, for all that good stuff. Um, Also, if you use the code, this is all caps, fish underscore wildlife, you're going to save 10% off your order. Uh, And right now through the end of the summer, they actually have a promotion going on. So if you order their bundle, which is one of each of their different type of brand, uh, if each of their different types of coffees, you're going to save 10% uh, on that as well, whether you use the promo code or not. But again, that promo code uh, at checkout is all caps fish underscore wildlife. And again, you can check them out at Wild Rivers Coffee Co. Com. All right. Joining me today on the podcast, I have new 2% committee member, Brian Cooper. Brian, how are you, man? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Really excited to be here and and be a part of this this great podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much. No, I'm, I'm glad that we could make this happen. I know Jared just made the introduction. Um, shoot. What, late, maybe late last week or something like that? Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, so, uh, and you were super responsive. A lot of times when uh, we make introductions, sometimes people are like, oh, you know, I'm free in a month or something like that. But uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited that we were able to kind of get this on the books right away. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's an honor to be on and, uh, you know, share our stories and, and try and move our common goal of conservation forward in whatever way we can. Yeah, absolutely. 
So it's been a while, honestly, since I've had uh, a committee member on. Um, a lot of the most recent guests have been um, either business owners or affiliated with 2% businesses. So when we first started the podcast, one of the things that we liked or that, that Jared and I kind of talked about was, you know, with 2%, it's, you know, it's ordinary people doing extraordinary things in the world of conservation. Um, right. So to kind of set the stage for that, what is it that you do for a living, Brian? Uh, so I have my own consulting business called Redtail Consulting, and uh, I've spent the last 15 years in the film and TV business uh, doing various things from uh, running and operating a company that leased lighting and grip equipment. So if you ever see a movie set and all the lights that you see all over it, a lot of those came from my company. And my most recent project is I built, I was the first employee um, for Pinewood Studios down here in Fayetteville, Georgia, which a lot of people may or may not be familiar with Pinewood, but uh, if you like Marvel films, just about every Marvel film for the past eight years was filmed in Pinewood Studios. So spent, uh, spent six years with them and then uh, went out, branched out and started my own company where I try and take Georgia-based companies and uh, hook them up with the film industry because they have goods and services that'll be um, useful and just don't know how to make that connection because it's kind of a different industry coming into to Georgia. So yeah, I've been doing that about two years and uh, really enjoying it. So how did you get started, um, I guess, working in like the film industry like that? Did, I mean, is that what you went to school for? No, no, it was actually kind of dumb luck. I um, worked for a company that we uh, I actually did commercial industrial lighting um, sales. And uh, one of the big parts that I did was actually when LED and T8 fluorescents started coming out, we would go in and sell big warehouse complexes to go from the metal halide and the, the high pressure sodium lights to a more efficient and environmentally friendly light. Well, we were very successful and had a, <clears throat> a publicly traded company come in and, and purchase uh, our company. And as happens a lot of times, uh, they said, thank you very much to the executive team. And uh, we've got it from here. Yep. <laughs> so uh, been there before. Uh, you know, had uh, my roommate at the time was in commercial real estate and called me one day and he said, hey, um, I got a guy that's starting a lighting company in, in Georgia, but it's it, it's not the lighting that you did. And he's looking for someone to run it. So, well, you know, what kind of lighting is it? He said, movie lighting. And I remember to this day thinking, well, that's strange because they don't film movies in Georgia, but I, I kind of piqued my interest. I went and met with the guy, learned a lot about a tax incentive that had just been signed in the state of Georgia, which was going to drive business here. And it was an established company out of L.A., and he was opening up the, the branch in Atlanta. So um, took kind of a, a gamble and uh, started it, and I, I really enjoy building things. So we actually had our last interview sitting Indian style on the floor in the, the warehouse that he had just rented. <laughs> so I, I like that and say, okay, well, what do we do from here? So it started from there and just love the industry. It's uh, it's a different industry. Um, and it's a, it was a fun industry to kind of bring my passion for conservation and the environment in as well, because it's a such a wasteful industry. And it's not on purpose. They just they consume so many resources doing a film. And so I spent a lot of my time working with 
their their groups as far as how we can decrease their consumption, how we can do things, how I could do things at Pinewood as a facility to help meet some of their their goals uh, that were sent down from corporate to be uh, net zero, which I don't know if any movie has ever been net zero right. after seeing how much they consume without buying offsets. But um, so, yeah, it, it really was just kind of dumb luck and didn't have to go to L.A., which there's nothing wrong with California for the listeners out there. I love it. I was actually born in Santa Monica, but at this point in my life, I love Georgia and was happy to stay home. Yeah, no, Ed, that, that is a, a crazy story. And I feel like a lot of people's careers or, or when there's kind of this, this big shift in careers, uh, well, I mean, you're still in the lighting business, right? Or in that industry, just obviously uh, like a different application, like you said. Right. But it's, it's those kind of happenstance um, occurrences when – it, it really kind of pays the biggest dividends. It, it really does. And really the shift from the lighting company to Pinewood was simply, I came down to call on Pinewood. I wanted to be a vendor and okay. the uh, development team and the uh, team that was financing it uh, took a liking to me and we started talking. And um, a few months later I was, I was hired as the first employee. And, and when it started, it was a, about a hundred acre wheat field. And now it's the second largest studio in North America. So wow. really proud of what we were able to accomplish there and, and that, and, you know, after six years, it was just time for me to, let's see what the next thing is. So is that where they were shooting a lot of the Marvel movies then was down there at that studio? Oh yeah. So our first one was Ant-Man. Um, and then we did Captain America, Civil War, uh, both of the Avengers Endgame, uh, kind of the, the two that were back-to-back Infinity Wars and, and Endgame were filmed there. Um, Ant-Man and the Wasp. I mean, really Marvel found a home at, at Pinewood. And, and there was already a relationship because Pinewood's an international brand. It actually was uh, started in London 80-some-odd years ago. Um, and so there was that relationship. But, yeah, they found a home. And still to this day... Uh, they're there. The The studio has, the ownership group has bought out the Pinewood section of it, and oh. now it's called Trillith Studios. Um, but yeah, there's still a lot of filming going on, and it's really made a big impact to the, the community that I live in. Um, obviously, bringing that many people and that much, those many dollars spent into a smaller, you know, our, our county has about 200,000 people total. So okay. it's not that big, and uh, it's made a big difference. Yeah, no, I'd imagine when you start bringing in, um, movies with the likes of of the ones that you just listed off yeah that's going to bring yeah a lot of uh economic growth i would say to to the area which i mean like you said can be you know a good and bad thing but for a smaller community uh especially i would imagine a lot of you know mom and pop type shops uh and businesses that are in the area with a, a smaller community so i'd imagine that things like that just you know are, are a benefit to to the yeah, the local income there, the local economy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't hurt that you can be having dinner and look over and see Pierce Brosnan or somebody, Chris Pratt, sitting over there having dinner next to you. It's kind of neat, too. Yeah, no, that, that would be real cool. So how much were you able to kind of be involved like while they were shooting? Or is it just kind of you would supply them with the lighting uh, and the different things that they needed? And then you kind of took a step back and, and worked on other projects? Well, when the, with the company, with the lighting, it's just what you said, you know, you kind of <clears throat> supply them, you do the deal, you make sure that, uh, that everything is working properly and maintain it. Once I went to Pinewood, it was more of an operations thing for the facility. So you're really, you're not involved in the production. You know, they come in and they're very self, uh, contained. They'll come in and they know what to do. 
you're there to support them. You're there to help if they want to utilize part of the facility in a way that maybe it was intended or not intended to, then you work through that or, you know, just make sure that everything's operating at maximum capacity and uh, efficiently for them. And really, uh, you know, most groups come in and, and make movies, they're, they're pretty good at what they do. And, yeah. you know, they're, uh, you just kind of want to get out of the way and uh, just make sure that, um, that they're happy because they're going to make it. And it's a, it's a, it's a high stress environment. Um, so you're, I'm there, I was there to try and deescalate some of the stress if I could. Sure. Yeah, no, that's, that makes total sense. Now, <clears throat> when you transitioned over a few years, a few years ago and started, uh, red tail consulting, is that basically just getting more people like, um, your previous company involved in um, like in, in the movie space, in the, the film industry? Um, or is it not just like from the lighting side of things, but, you know, really kind of anything that, that goes along with potentially like, you know, production and things like that? No, exactly. It's, it's really anything that goes along with it. And the core purpose is that uh, the state of Georgia has a, a tax incentive, and that's what's that's what's driving a lot of the business here. It's a thirty percent tax incentive that, uh, or tax rebate that is transfer transferable, and it works in Georgia because there's a lot of big business here. You've got Home Depot, you've got Chick Fil A, you've got Coca Cola that can actually buy large um, tax rebates, and as an individual, I can go out and buy tax credits. Um, at 86 cents on the dollar or whatever it's trading at now. But what really drives that and makes that incentive economically viable for the state of Georgia is the spend that these movies have need to be in the state of Georgia. They don't need to be resourcing or sourcing a product from California that doesn't help the state of Georgia when they can source that same project here. And so my idea was there's a lot of, of companies that are Georgia-based, small, big, what have you, that have a, a good or a service that will work well in the industry. And I just wanted to bring those together so it strengthens the spend that they're making in the state of Georgia and ultimately will sustain that tax credit uh, for years to come. Okay. All right. No, that makes that makes total sense. Then is essentially kind of in a nutshell, keeping keeping a lot of that industry, a lot of that money that's being spent right there in Georgia instead of trying to, to pull from, from other states or, or things like that. Exactly right. Exactly okay. right. All right. Well, that's that's a super cool uh, industry to be into uh, or to be in because, yeah, I mean, just the the different types of, <clears throat> excuse me, companies that you work with that, that offer those goods, goods and services that maybe you otherwise would not have an opportunity to to get involved with, to, to know kind of what they offer or what their business model really is in terms of, you know, again, what they're supplying, but then being able to obviously help them grow their business. Um, that's, that, that's super cool. Yeah, exactly. And then you never know what they're going to ask for. I mean, I would get calls from production. Sometimes I got a call one afternoon that they needed a half a cow and I thought, okay, interesting. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I had to go to work and, through uh, through some phone calls and stuff, I was able to source that for them. But then it turned into they needed a goat. So um, you know, it's it's just one of those things that in the end, the industry is so ever changing, and and that's exciting about it that you never know what to expect when yeah. you go in. 
so is it like the the production like the studio that's actually calling you then to be like hey this is what we're looking for what can you help us with uh the way it works is like you have a big you know what you call the studios the big four out in california that are producing this like marvel's part of disney and then they have a production team that's on the ground and they they run the show on the ground and then through that it's just like any other organization that it's split up into departments with department heads so you have a multitude of people uh, a large production like marvel could have a thousand people working for it and each department will call when they need something and not necessarily for everything. I mean, they source their own products and, and there we, as the studio facility were there again to, to make sure that the facility was up to their standards and what they needed. But also if they did come across something that they couldn't find, we were the locals. So, you know, we had the local knowledge and they would, they would reach out. So generally when we got a call to source something, it was always something that was odd. And they just had no idea because they had never sourced it before. So just like any other organization out there, you know, big, big business. Yeah. And I'd imagine if they were getting a hold of you because they couldn't find something, it was probably uh, super last minute. They had probably <laughs> exhausted all their resources, all their resources. So you were then put under the gun like, hey, I need you to find half a cow and a goat by like, you know, by 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. And it's, you know, it's 530 on a Friday. I so it's usually, like... usually it would be five thirty on a Friday. They needed to buy six fifteen the same Friday. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes. So did they need the half a cow and a goat for like food for craft services or something like that? Then no, they were actually using it uh, in a scene. It was for a, a scene that was going to be kind of uh, post uh, in in the credits for Guardians of the Galaxy two. Oh, like um, post uh, was... apocalyptic type scene. Yeah, well, actually, it was, uh, if I remember correctly, I think it got cut. I think it was two cavemen that were fighting over uh, food, basically. And <laughs> so I asked them, I said, I said, all right, can we, you know, obviously, this is kind of what would be considered a prop. Can we actually utilize this in some way after the scene? So they did, in fact, give it to uh, craft service to um to cook up some some tasty vittles after uh after they were done with the scene yeah well like so. you said no waste exactly exactly <laughs> being respectful to uh to the animal itself so yeah definitely all right so we've kind of we we have the uh, let's call it the baseline established what it is that you do for a living and what kind of sets you apart uh in the conservation world so let's jump right into, you know, more of the fun stuff, the, you know, the outdoors. So right. when was it that you were kind of first introduced to the outdoors? Uh, you know, my story is a little bit different uh, than a lot. Um, <clears throat> you know, I've listened to a lot of the guests that you've had come on and I really didn't grow up in an outdoor family. Um, my parents just weren't, my dad was not an avid hunter. I actually don't think my dad's been hunting a day in his life. Um, maybe a little fishing, but, uh, I was put in a position that I was lucky enough that I had friends that were good friends that did come from families that were, that were avid outdoorsmen. So at a very young age, I started getting invited to go, you know, deer hunting, uh, turkey hunting, what have you, dove hunting, and <clears throat> really just kind of fell in love with it. Um, I was, uh, I can remember as far as you know, taking the hunting aspect of it, but just the part that I really felt a connection to, to nature and really wanted to be a part of it and how the world worked. I remember being in fifth grade and I was sitting there and we were in science class and we were talking about things that were biodegradable. Um, 
and as a fifth grader, uh, we don't think that well with our heads. Sometimes we're, we're learning. And <laughs> I had a, I had an itch in my ear and, you know, kids now probably don't know what this is, but you know, the old number two pencils that had the little metal thing on the end and then the eraser in there. Well, I used that to, to scratch my inner ear and the eraser popped off Oh, and, and I couldn't get it out. So I raised my hand my teacher, she called on me and I said, um, are erasers biodegradable? And she kind of thought for a minute and she was like, well, yes, I, I think it would take a substantial amount of time, but yeah, they're biodegradable. So I thought, cool, it'll biodegrade my ear. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> so uh, about, about a week later, about a week later, I'm, uh, my mom's walking past uh, my bathroom of the house and I'm up on the, the sink kind of looking in the, the mirror at my ear. And she said, you know, Brian, what are you doing? I said, well, I got an eraser in my ear, but you know, don't worry, it's cool. It's biodegradable. And she <laughs> lost it. She, you know, straight to the emergency room, got it out. And at that point, it had actually worked itself into my ear to the point where the doctor said, You are about a centimeter uh, to getting surgery. And it would have gone a little bit further down. So, oh, wow. um, but it really kind of opened my eyes to how the different things worked. And it, it really was uh, a matter of, okay, so the homeostasis and, and kind of looking at this works with that and this in the natural world. Um, I was also in, introduced to the outdoors through scouts. Um, you know, I, I was not an Eagle Scout. My troop fell apart, but I was very involved from a young age in getting out and, and the, the hiking aspect and the camping aspect and starting to learn respect for our natural community. So that was pretty impactful uh, to me. And that was when I kind of made the transition from what I would consider being a consumer of the outdoors, just going out and, and, and almost being selfish about it. You know, I'm, in, I'm enjoying the outdoors, but I realized that I wasn't giving anything back. So, you know, the big campaign that <clears throat> the leave no trace that's still around today and it'll be around forever. That was the first thing that I experienced that I thought, okay, it's my job to do something for the environment rather than just take from the environment. And that really was kind of my um, initial years of becoming a conservationist and learning what it meant and learning how to, to, to live in one with uh, the natural world. So if you got, or it's okay. So you got started um, thankfully through some friends who had families that, that grew up kind of in the outdoors uh, that were, like you said, you know, avid outdoorsmen, outdoors women, their family. So how, or at what point, I mean, did you, did you start hunting at that young age, let's say, or was it just more of just outdoor activities and, and spending, you know, time, like you said, when you were with the scouts, you know, hiking and camping and just learning more about the outdoors? Uh, it was actually hunting. You know, they would take me out uh, down here in, in the South. I grew up in South Carolina. Okay. And um, down here in the south, opening day of dove season is, it, it's like church. You know, everyone changes everything that they're doing for opening day of, of dove season. And so I started getting invited year after year to go to a dove hunt. Then got to be closer with uh, with different people and they saw that I really had an enjoyment and, uh, of that. And so then started getting invited to go deer hunting. Um, so it was a lot of actually going out and, and in the in the hunting world, which is what I truly fell in love with. I mean, I love I love going on hikes and I love camping and all that stuff, but uh, really getting out and 
and everything that goes into the hunting world is what I what I became passionate about and fell in love with. Yeah, and I've heard some cool stories about uh, dove hunting and how it, it is. Yeah, it's kind of this, you know, this this holiday, this national holiday for for a lot of areas uh, where dove hunting takes place. I've never personally done it, but it, it looks fun because it, it's. It reminds me a lot of like, you know, I'm here in Michigan and, you know, when we have like opening day of, of rifle season for deer hunting, it's kind of this, right. this big thing. I mean, uh, you know, depending on the area you live in, I mean, they'll close down schools for the day. Um, but it's, it's always like this big kind of coming together of, you know, friends and family for, for deer camp, you know, sometimes, you know, there's deer camps where, you know, a group of five or 10 people get together and, and heck, they may not even hunt or maybe only one or two guys are actually hunt. It's just kind of the, the camaraderie of the whole thing, just the, the being able to come together and spend a few days, you know, in a remote area, kind of um, unplugged from, you know, your day to day, you know, hustle and bustle, if you will. And, but with dove hunting, it's, it seems like it's probably a little bit different because one, it's, you know, it's, it, dove hunting seems to happen in a lot, you know, nicer climates than November, uh, in Michigan. But, um, you know, there's, it's, it, I, I don't know, dove hunting, obviously is just, it's, it's a whole different ball game than, you know, whitetail hunting. It, it definitely is. And I, I wouldn't say a nicer environment environment because it happens in September generally, and Ooh. it is hot yeah. in September in the yeah. South. Uh, but it is exactly what you're saying. It's the same as opening day of rifle season. And generally you go on a dove hunt and you could have 30 to 50 to hundred people there, depending on the size of the field. And up until recently, they just changed the law in Georgia on opening day. You couldn't enter the field until noon. So you would get there early. You would have a big barbecue, a lot of that uh, camaraderie and just catching up with people. And you'd see people that maybe, you hadn't seen since last year's stuff hunt and kind of catching up and then also going out in the field. And at a younger age, it was also one of the things that kind of introduced me to, you know, regulations and things because a dove is a, a it, it's a migratory bird. So it's not listed under the state resources and the federal resources. So learning a little bit about the differentiation between that too was, was kind of interesting as growing up, but and a dove popper is probably one of the best things that you could have where you take a dove breast, take a jalapeno, cut it in half, put some cream cheese in it, put the dove breast on top of it, wrap it in bacon, throw it on the grill, and it's uh, it's pretty amazing. That doesn't sound too bad, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I mean, I've had I've I've done that with pheasant before, but not with dove, but I'd imagine that they're probably, you know, similar in taste. I mean, they're they're similar style birds, but no, that uh especially, you know, if you you know, are able to kill a, you know, a mess of doves. I mean, that's, that's enough food to, yeah, like you said, feed 50 to a hundred people. Yeah. And if you think about it, the limit on doves is 15 per person. So, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you have plenty, uh, plenty to cook afterwards for sure. Yeah. So now as you know, you started at that young age and then you kind of, you know, got into high school and into college. So was hunting something that, that stayed with you all that time or, you know, did the like normal high school, college type things kind of get in the way and, you know, whether it was sports, just friends, just wanting to be, you know, a teenager, a, a young adult. Uh, I mean, how did, how did that kind of look for you? Uh, it actually uh, became one of the central aspects of my life. So as I got older, especially into the teenage years and I played sports, football, baseball, never did basketball, was never good at it. But, uh, 
hunting became one of those centralized aspects. And in my formative years, I didn't really know why, but I was just drawn to to be out there. I was lucky enough that as I got a little bit older, I had the opportunity to hunt at a at a club that was very close to my high school. And so turkey has always kind of been one of those things. Just the spring and chasing turkeys, it just, I mean, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it now, even though we're just coming out of turkey season. But we would go and we would hunt daybreak every morning of the season. And then we would leave and we'd go straight to school and still be in our camouflage, be on time for school. Uh, you know, nowadays you could not do this, but we had our weapon, you know, we had our shotguns in the car, half of them, you know, were visible. Obviously you can't do this. We're talking, you know, I graduated high school in 1995, so early, early 90s. But we would go to school, after school, we'd head back to the club and hunt in the afternoon and the evening, try and do a little bit of homework uh, in there to keep our parents happy. But it, it kept progressing that it was, that it truly was something that I was building what, you know, my essence of a human being around. Yeah, no, that's, uh, <laughs> the times were certainly different uh, in the early 90s, <laughs> early and mid 90s uh, in the way that um, firearms were looked at. Uh, yeah, exactly. Cause, yeah, because I grew up in a rural community in northern lower Michigan, and it was a lot of the same ways. I mean, a lot of uh, my friends, I mean, I would say if you didn't participate in the outdoors in some way, shape, or form, that you were probably in the minority. Um, it was right, just right. it was just the way things were done. And like I said, our school closed down on opening day of rifle season. And I mean, there was obviously some some safety concerns that went along with that. But, you know, a, a lot of kids wouldn't show up, you know, either way. So um, to hear about, you know, just other other parts of the country, you know, in the South where, you know, things are looked at, were, were looked at in, in the same way is pretty cool to hear because, you know, you can't always kind of compare, you know, regions in terms of how the outdoors is looked at. Right, right. And then I did have, we didn't close down for opening days of specific things, but luckily I was, I had a supportive enough parents that uh, I will say that I may have been um, allowed to stay out of school on certain days. We'll just, <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, uh, no, th- those parents, yeah, kudos to those guys for, for <laughs> kind of seeing the uh, the big picture and seeing the long game at an early age. Exactly. Exactly. So you're, you're heavily involved, um, with hunting in the outdoors, you know, through high school, you know, through college. So at what point did you kind of have that, that shift where you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start volunteering my time. Now I'm going to start giving back more. I know you mentioned earlier that you were still, or that, you know, when, when you had the incident with the eraser that, that kind of, you know, <laughs> opened, opened your eyes a little bit and, and made you start exploring and researching a little bit more. But, you know, now that you're, you know, into your adulthood and, you know, you can kind of take the bull by the horns a little bit more, so to speak, you know, what was it or, or when did you start becoming more actively involved in, in giving back and, and trying to, to do your part? Um, I would say that it really kind of beginning of it started in college, uh, where we had, I went to the university of Tennessee and we had a university of Tennessee ducks unlimited chapter that I got involved in was the chairman at one point. Um, and at that point, you know, as a college student, you, you look at as, 
as coming into an adult, you look at the things you have to offer. And I've heard guests say on your podcast for it's um, time, talent, treasure. And obviously in the college years, the treasure was minimal, um, especially when you have to at some points decide whether you're going to eat or you're going to go out with your friends uh, on that night. So didn't have a lot of money to give back, but I realized very quickly that I've got time. I've got time that I can give back. And there are certain talents that, that I had. I always had a propensity that I, I loved people. I loved networking and, and doing those things. So I kind of took that, that time with Ducks Unlimited and said, you know, this is, this is something that I need to do more of. Um, and this is me giving back. This is me when I go out into the field that I'm, again, just not, I'm not just taking from the natural environment. I'm doing everything I can to give back and to find that balance. So through, through college, really involved in Ducks Unlimited and kind of kept that same mentality. You know, obviously we get out of college and, you know, I wasn't one of those lucky ones that just first job out, I wasn't making a ton of money, but I still had time. You know, everybody has the same amount of time. You got 24 hours in the day and it's a matter of how you choose to spend that time. And I started spending more and more of that time volunteering, getting involved almost to the point where it was in excess after college. All of a sudden I'm involved in so many different things that it's like, all right, there are other things that, you know, I want to be doing. So I had to kind of trim that down and, and get more focused on where I wanted to spend my, my energy. And that's where land conservation and habitat restoration really started coming into play kind of in my i'd say mid 20s to late 20s and since then i've kind of been full bore that's that's my passion that's what i want to do that's the legacy that i want to leave i don't care about having my name on a building i don't care about making all this money obviously i like to we all like to make money but after my time i want to leave the legacy of what i could have done for the land or what i did do for the land yeah, and that's a great way to look at it is because <clears throat> a lot of people, I think in the back of their mind, they always have this idea of, of what you just said, right? What their legacy is going to be. And, you know, different strokes for different folks. You know, some people want, some people do want that name on the building, right? For right. for whatever reason, I mean, no no shame to them because, again. Absolutely. Um, but to to have that realization that, you know, I want my legacy to be what it is that I did for, you know, for the outdoors, for the common good, really, of, of everyone. Because, you know, for the most part, in, every, in, in any way, uh, shape or form, that people are, are using the, the resource of the outdoors to some capacity, right? And to be able... Or to say that, you know, this is what I'm going to do. This is this is how I'm going to, I plan to leave my mark um, really for the betterment of other people and not for yourself, uh, I think is awesome. And it really, you know, just speaks speaks volumes to the, to the character that you have and the vision that you have, you know, for the outdoors for the future. Yeah, and, and really, if you look at it, uh, you know, you take it a little bit further than just those that that utilize the outdoors for camping, hunting, fishing, what have you. Our natural environment is important to every single person on this planet. It is everything from the way our habitat is and the way that the world can can actually heal itself with carbon sequestration. And just, I mean, look at photosynthesis. It, it, the air that we breathe, that every person on this planet breathes, comes from things in the natural world. So it, it's much greater than just the the hunting population or the angling population. 
And I grew up in a, in a Christian family and, you know, still am. And I truly believe that the natural world is a gift that was given to us. And we have a responsibility to be a good steward to that. And so that's, that's kind of my, my overarching purpose to go in there. It's just like, if someone gives you a gift, you know, whether it be a new shotgun or something like that, your job is to take care of that. And if you don't, it's not going to work. It's not going to function. So just putting that on a larger scale and, and, and really looking at the, um, the outdoor world. And then this is going to sound a little crazy. And you may remember this, you may remember this movie, but there was a Pauly Shore movie called Biodome. Yeah, for sure. And the whole premise was that they were, they stumbled upon this research facility that was really trying to create homeostasis and solve all the environmental problems and stuff. And Paul Shore and his buddy came in and wrecked it like in a day or two. I mean, just absolutely wrecked it. And then through them having a realization of what they had done, they actually worked and fixed it. And they were able to achieve the goal of whatever time it was. And even though it was a comedy and it was supposed to be campy, it really is kind of a powerful message that we as humans have come into this gift and we have wrecked it. You know, it's not, we can still salvage it but we have come in and we are Pauly Shore coming into Biodome and <laughs> it is our responsibility to actually uh, to see what we can do to fix it. So uh, not the, not the movie that most people would say had an in, impact on their, <laughs> on their beliefs, but uh, it did for me. Yeah. I haven't heard the, the movie title Biodome in no joke 20 years. So I, pre- I appreciate you bringing that back up. And you watch, you're going to watch it within the next couple of weeks. You're going to sit there one day and be like, I have to go back and watch that. So yeah, <laughs> you're I'm welcome. Gonna, yeah. Searching Netflix, searching Amazon prime. I know this movie's got to be out there somewhere. Where can I watch it for free? Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so kind of taking that one step further, um, you know, you were recently, uh, you recently became a committee member for 2% for conservation. So how was it that you, uh, first learned about 2%? I, it really was, uh, it, I can't pinpoint it, whether it was a pop-up ad or something on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, but I saw it and I went to the website and started reading about it. And, and, and at first it didn't make sense because I was like, wait a minute, I can sign up for free and I get this cool sticker and I'm already giving 1% of uh, you know, my income and way more than 1% of my time uh, to this. And but it really, it really kind of hit me. It was like, this is what people need. They need that motivation to kind of say, um, hey, I, I can do this. And they may already do it, but it gives them something, something tangible that they can really work towards and say, this is why I'm working towards it. I'm a member of 2% for conservation. I've made a commitment to, to give 1% of, of my income and 1% of my time back to conservation efforts. And being involved in different conservation organizations it's not a competing organization and not that the, all the conservation organizations are competing necessarily, but they are kind of going after money in the same pot. So they go after people that they, you know, they want to have people that'll give money at a ducks unlimited banquet and also give money at national wild Turkey Federation. But I thought it was really cool that 2% was like, says do that. You don't have to give us any money. You know, as an individual member, we just want to help you track it. We want to help you give, give you the resources through the committee members and, and different programs that are, um, that are there. So it just, it just seemed like the coolest idea, um, in the world to me. 
And then it, I'd been a member for maybe, I don't know, two years, a year. I, I, I joined pretty early on in the inception of the program, but I saw the committee member um, part of it. And I thought, you know, that's, that's another way that I can give some time that correlates with what I'm already doing. That if someone needed help finding something in Georgia or the Southeast or whatever, that I can help them to find those organizations to volunteer and, and to um, give their, their donations to. So I, I think the sky's the limit for 2%. I think it's one of the greatest uh, organizations that I've come across. And uh, just really excited and really honored that, you know, I sent in the application and Jared reached out to me. We had a conversation and, uh, you know, he, uh, we, we hit it off and here I am on the podcast. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I love it. Yeah, and I think one of the cool things and one of the things that separates 2% from a lot of other organizations is the accountability part of it, right? I mean, because they're, Absolutely. you know, while uh, an individual or a business can can say that, yeah, I'm going to give, you know, the, the, the 1% of my time, the 1% of my money back, you know, <clears throat> there's 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 nothing tracking it with some other organizations, right? They're like, I mean, well, with 2%, like, you know, when you first sign up, you know, if you're a new business or you're just getting started, like you're, you're making the commitment, you're, you're pledging that you're going to do this. And then, you know, periodically throughout the course of the year, you know, whether it's Jared, whether it's Calvin, you know, someone's checking in to say, you know, you know, how, how are you doing with your, uh, with your time and money? You know, you know, what have you been giving back to? So it's, it's that accountability part that I feel like really separates it and really, makes people want to to stay active to stay engaged and to do the things that they said that they were going to do i, I agree 100 percent. and that that accountability i think that that's part of the psychology of just human nature you know if you make a commitment to something and and that's uh, honestly it sounds silly but that's kind of where the sticker comes in too you put the sticker on your car you put it on your water bottle you put it on whatever and, and it's that constant reminder i made a commitment so have i met that commitment and and there is that accountability, so I I agree hundred percent. Yeah, because the last thing you want to be, I mean, it's it's one thing for someone to you know see the sticker, uh, or see a T-shirt, see a hat that you might be wearing, and you know whether they're familiar with it or not, they're going to immediately associate you with whatever that that brand or that logo is, and yeah, the the feeling of kind of walking around as a fraud. I feel like as an individual, like if you're not actually doing what you said you were going to do would kind of eat up at me, right? It's, it's, you're all, you'd almost be like living a lie. Like I said, Absolutely. Oh yeah. Like I'm, I'm giving back 1% of my time and 1% of my money. And you go home and look in the mirror, like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Right. So yeah, that's that there's just, yeah. Like, like you just said, there's these little things that are constant reminders that help keep you accountable and, you know, essentially put the work in because, you know, for, whether you're, you know, if you're a business to put in those 21 hours, it's a lot easier, right? Especially if you have, you know, five, you know, even if you just have five employees, you know, you can take your entire company out for Saturday, Saturday morning and boom, you've hit your 21 hours, right? But right. As, an, as an individual, you know, 21 hours is obviously more of a time commitment. It's more of a commitment, but it's also still very, very attainable. And it's like you mentioned earlier on, you know, everyone has the same amount of time in the day. It's how you choose to spend it. And if you just, you know, make that conscious effort to say, okay, you know, this day I'm going to do this, this day I'm going to do that. Next month, I, I, you know, I'm going to volunteer with this. Like it, that 21 hours comes pretty darn quick. 
It does. It does. And it's, uh, you know, that commitment, like me personally, I try and make two, two, I, I have two different commitments that aside from the organizations I'm involved with, just personal commitments is I want to have a long-term commitment to the environment and to conservation. And then I want to have a short-term commitment. And for me personally, my long-term commitment is I don't drink bottled water. Um, you know, people can debate bottled water all they want, but it's a very wasteful industry. You know, 29 billion some odd people are bottles of water are consumed every year and very little of that comes comes back into to recycling. Just so many different things with it. So I carry a water bottle with me every day. So that's my long term commitment. My short term commitment is that every day of my life, I want to do one act that is positive for um, the environment. And that may be as simple as picking up a piece of trash, um, choosing when I go to do a fast food restaurant and say, no, I don't need the, the utensils, you know, saying no to, to single use, just whatever it is. And I think that those things uh, also lend to it that if we look at 328 million people just in the U.S. alone, everybody in the U.S. did one thing every day. It doesn't have to be a big thing. If everybody did one thing, we could have some pretty momentous shift in, in what's going on in today's society. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, it's one of the things I say, uh, when I sign off with the podcast, you know, I say conservation starts with you because, you know, it doesn't have to be this big rah, rah act or, or thing, I guess that you do. It's, it's as simple as, yeah, you're, you know, you're at the store, you're walking out to your car with your groceries or whatever. And uh, someone, you know, candy wrapper on the ground pop bottle on the ground, whatever it is, you know, pick it up, throw it in the trash or put it in your car and then throw it in the trash when you get home, right? Like those little things go such a long ways in, in the long run that, you know, and it's, it doesn't take, it doesn't take any type of real effort, right? I mean, no. what you bend over to tie your shoe once or twice a day, <laughs> right? Bend over and pick up a piece of trash. I mean, that extra three calories that you're burning aren't going to hurt you, I promise. Yeah, exactly. And and that's one thing that really attracted me to the whole idea that you've started with the average conservationist is that's what it is. And I think that I think that what we do for the environment, what we do for conservation, what we do for the world is a highly personal thing. And you just hit the nail on the head. It doesn't have to be this big rah rah thing. I don't need anybody patting me on the back for doing this. Right. This is something that is personal to me that I'm gonna make a difference in and hopefully through that somebody may see you do this and it may make them think the next time that they are walking over a piece of trash, that they just pick up a piece of trash, throw it in there, that they make a conscious choice to, to do something, to keep something out of our landfill. So um, that's the whole idea of grassroots. You know, let's, let's start seeing more and more people do this and then it becomes the norm. Yeah. And that, that's, that's what we're really looking for. Yeah. So now from a conservation side of things, what are some projects that, that you personally are involved in, whether it's um, kind of at a, you know, at, a, at a larger scale with maybe some national organizations or even you know, locally there in Georgia that, uh, that you're working on? Right. So I, I serve on two boards um, that are focused on land conservation. Uh, the, the national organization that I'm on the board for is called Partnerships for Conservation. And really, we are a group that advocates positive legislation for land conservation. And <clears throat> there's been a lot of stuff in the news lately about syndicated easements and different things. And, um, you know, in the past, it's really been kind of conservation and land doing conservation easements have, have really been kind of geared towards high net wealth individuals. 
So, you know, how do we put this down to your normal landowner that doesn't have uh, a huge tax liability, but they can participate in this? Um, so we, we work with senators in Washington, you know, the House. We work with Congress on, on positive legislation and, and just be an advocate for conservation. On the local level, I'm on the board of Southern Conservation Trust, and we are a land trust. So when I started on the board about eight years ago, we had 1,600 acres uh, under conservation. And now we're approaching roughly 75,000 acres. Oh, wow. Um, we're in 11 states. We are uh, very involved in other aspects of conservation, not just the the simple and not that it's simple, but doing conservation easements, we really focus on education. So teaching not just kids, which is, is, is important in the formative years, but also teaching adults, you know, how this whole thing works. You know, what is it that we're losing every minute we're losing an acre of land to development? Um, you know, what is it that that is going to give our children, our grandchildren, our great grandchildren the same resources that we have now? So we've, we've really focused on, on what that means in a holistic approach. And I, and I really believe we're one of the few land trusts that do that, where it's not just focused on taking land and putting it under a conservation easement and conserving it in perpetuity, but we, wanna, we want every aspect of it. We want to teach. We want to have people that haven't experienced the outdoors actually get into the outdoors. Um, we're one of the few land trusts that is truly pro-hunting. Um, you know, you get some land trust out there. They're like hunting. No, nope, that's a bad thing. Like, no, well, actually there's a lot of, of science and a lot of data on why it's a good thing. Not to mention the Pittman Robinson act, which puts, you know, has put $20 billion into conservation since the late thirties. So there's more than just that. And it, it's been a lot of fun. We've got an amazing team. We just opened up our, uh, we just bought a, bought a nature center in an 1800s uh, house here in Fayetteville. We've turned it into a nature center. We've got 14 acres around the nature center itself that we're turning into a botanical garden um, to really give back to the, the public. We do a lot of public parks here in Fayetteville. We've got 700 and some odd acres of public parks with trails and um, lots of different opportunities to get people outside. So those are, those are the two, the two big organizations I'm, um, I'm really involved with. And then, of course, aside from that, Ducks Unlimited and National Wild Turkey Federation, still kind of same mission, maybe, uh, you know, species specific, but uh, still the under all goal of everything that I'm involved in is conservation. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that, <clears throat> I mean, just those, you know, uh, being a, a member on the board of directors for those two uh, conservation uh, organizations that you mentioned, I mean, and the work that you guys are doing, I mean, hell, that sounds like, you know, a full-time job in and of itself, let alone, <laughs> you know, having your own consulting business, uh, you know, maybe maybe the consulting business is on the side, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just funding all of the stuff that you need to do for these, um, these you know, board positions. And and kind of a, to, to add to that, really a lot of this stuff is funding my love of the outdoors and being able to go out and experience this. So, yeah. you know, with what I do for a living, to fund that, what I do uh, as far as volunteer on these boards, the the ultimate goal is that I want to I want to have a piece of land that I can go and enjoy what I really enjoy doing. So how so with the Southern uh, Conservation Trust, I mean, how is it that you guys are acquiring? I mean, you said you have um, 
land in 11 different states. So how are you guys kind of going about uh, acquiring that land for conservation purposes or for easements? So it's really, it's kind of twofold. We've built relationships over the past couple of years of people that are large landowners that are looking for tax breaks. And, you know, anybody who says that conservation easements and stuff doesn't kind of really fall into the tax break, um, I'd like to have a conversation with them. But <laughs> they, uh, and, and it's the way that I subscribe. Like, I'm, I'm a capitalist. Look, I'm, I'm all about people making money. You know, have at it. Do it within the constraints of the law and what's out there. It's great. And even if you look back to Aldo Leopold, you know, he shifted in his life from kind of uh, his economics to where he really understood that to fund conservation, what we do in the Pittman-Robinson Act is great, but we need private capital to fund conservation. And with what we've got going on now with this 30-30 initiative, wanting to conserve 30% or protect 30% of the land in the U.S. in the next nine years, people don't realize we're only at 12% right now. If you look at the protected land in the United States of America, we're at 12%. So we've got a, we've got a ways to go, and, and, and that's a, a significant amount of acreage. So we had relationships with landowners, and then we also became where word of mouth. We started getting calls from, like we got a call from Colorado. And they wanted us to do an, an easement out there. It's like, absolutely. You know, we're, we're kind of one of those that don't, if it's got true conservation value and we see it as, as an opportunity, we're absolutely going to do it. And my goal, not necessarily our staff's goal and the rest of the board, but I'd love to see us everywhere. You know, I'd like to see us have, uh, be one of the first land trusts that's not just based in one geographic location. I'd love to have us have a satellite office, you know, on the West coast or in the Midwest or what have you, that is, that is taking care of these, uh, these easements. But, uh, it's really just building that name. It's just like 2%, you know, over time you start building that name. And when I first talked to Jared, he had actually heard of our land trust and that, that really, it made me smile. I mean, I called our executive director right after I was like, I just talked to this dude, Jared from 2% conservation. And he heard of us, you know, he's in Montana. We're in Fayetteville, Georgia. So we, we through the past couple of years and, um, you know, we don't do big marketing campaigns or anything like that. It's a, it's a lot of word of mouth and doing the right thing and being easy to work with. And people know that they can come to us and, and trust us uh, with what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, no, that's uh, <clears throat> yeah. First off, yeah, if Jared's heard of you, you're doing something right, because he's definitely got his uh, kind of ear to the ground when it comes to the conservation world. So, yeah, to be essentially, you know, two thirds of the way across the country and have him, you know, know, you know, who the land trust is and the work that you guys are doing. I mean, no, that definitely speaks volumes uh, to the work, again, that you're doing. But I like what you said about, you know, the word of mouth and kind of organically growing, uh, you know, the the um, the organization and, you know, just this holistic approach, as you mentioned, um, to adding, you know, land and conservation easements, you know, across the country, because, yeah, I mean, if you said we're at 12% now and we have, you know, nine years, I mean, that's, that's an uphill climb for sure. Uh, absolutely. And, and I think it's achievable. Um, but it, it really, I think one of the key components to it is conservation organizations, which the large, some of the largest ones are specialized in the hunting industry yeah, and right. hunters, do make up a large percentage of of 
people that are involved in conservation and the dollars that goes into it. But Jared and I were talking about this recently. Just because you go out and buy a hunting license does not make you a conservationist. Right. That that was something that was enacted before any of us were born. There's probably very few people that are still alive today that are still buying a hunting license. Uh, we're born in 1939 or 37 or whenever the act went in. So I think it's important to educate and promote not only in the hunting world, but the non-hunting world. And because it is it is important to all of us. And we can, I don't mind driving it and being an avid outdoorsman and, and being part of the, the solution and driving it. But we, we need those, whether it be time, talent, treasure. But, you know, whatever you can give to conservation outside of the hunting world. And if we can find that, then I think we're we're making a, a big step forward, which is where, you, you know, honestly, you come in. I mean, the average conservationist is that's it. You don't have to be a sportsman. You don't have to just the average everyday American can be a conservationist and make a positive impact on what we're all trying to achieve. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head there and that's exactly like where, you know, the name for the brand and for the company kind of came from is there's, you know, there's a lot more people out there like you and I who are, you know, spending their, their off hours, their, their nights, their weekends, you know, whether it's, whether it's just, you know, whether it's hunting, uh, volunteering with, um, different conservation organizations, whatever the case is, than people who are you know fortunate enough to kind of make a living as a, as a conservationist, right? Or or right. make a living, you know, as maybe you know a, a member on the board of directors for some of these organizations where you know they're actually you know paid positions um, or anything like that. And you know, they're they're strength in numbers, right? So if there's more of us than there are of them, you know, we need to come together and we need. You know, our voice is heard, and not that they're not, because I certainly think they are. But I, I kind of wanted to celebrate, you know, those those people who you know don't necessarily need to, but want to, right? Like they they feel right. that, like you mentioned earlier, they feel that kind of moral obligation to do the right thing with the gift that they were given of you know the land. Yeah, exactly, and and it's really how do you bring two different groups together that have the same underlying goal. Of right. conservation, but we may have different ideals about a how to get there. You know, you have the non-hunters and the hunters, and sometimes they can be diametrically opposed uh, with certain organizations. But if you strip all that away and look at what we're really trying to achieve, then there's ways that we can work together. And and your average American has the time, has the talent, and has the the treasure to give one of them to something to make a positive change. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, as we kind of wind things down here, I kind of, I like to ask, and and you've said you've listened to some episodes before, so you're probably familiar. I like to just, you know, kind of find out what people have in store for the rest of the year, if they have any big uh, trips planned, any big hunts planned that they're excited about. So what do you have uh, in store for the uh, last half of 2021 here? Well, the last half of 2021, uh, you know, obviously 2020 kind of disrupted a lot of things. Yes. Uh, but uh, for me personally, I try and take uh, a couple of trips a year. Um, I do, I try and go out to South Dakota in November to do a pheasant hunt. Um, I try and go to Chesapeake Bay to do a duck hunt. Uh, and, and I do quail hunts early in the year, which will be next year. But uh, it, it really is as a matter of kind of getting back on track after 2020, after the, the whole pandemic and, and all this, and then just uh, figuring out what's next. Um, I'm really 
we're in a big transitional period with conservation easements. Um, and so a lot of my time is going to be spent fighting the good fight for that, you know, working with P4C and, and strengthening the integrity of our conservation easements on the national level and really, and then on the grassroots level, you know, we've got a Southern Conservation Trust. We've got our banquet in uh, September, uh, you know, one of our big fundraisers of the year. So we've been doing some work with that, but really I'm, I'm the kind of person that any chance that I can get to get outside, I'm, I'm there. Um, I gave up playing golf a long time ago because if I got four hours to spend outside, I want to be in the woods. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I don't want to be on a golf course. I want to be in the woods. And so, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting back to South Dakota, to be honest. Uh, one of the members that we've gone out there for years passed away last year. And uh, so this would be the first trip without him. And he was the one who always put it together. So that'll probably be a pretty special trip and an emotional trip as well, as this is a person that was in my, my life for 10 years. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of kind of where I am and what I'm looking for for the, the next half. And just trying to keep my head above water. <laughs> that's yeah. what we're all trying to do right now. Yeah, that's the truth. I mean, it sounds like between Chesapeake Bay and then South Dakota, I mean, those are some pretty uh, pristine areas for, you know, waterfowl and for pheasants. So it sounds like some uh, some awesome trips for sure. And I would love to, I've never hunted in Michigan. Um, I would love Say to the word, to man. Say the word. You want to and, and I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Michigan because I'm a huge Hemingway fan. So okay. he's from Michigan. Yep. <laughs> it's uh but it, it looks like a beautiful state and you know, yeah, we might have to, we're gonna have to work that out this year. Yeah, no, Michigan is, I feel like, and, and I'm sure this is, you know, mostly because I'm biased of, of being a, you know, a Michigan resident born and raised here, but it's, it's vastly underrated in terms of the outdoors. I mean, we have, you know, the great lakes, you know, we have the upper peninsula, you know, and there's just, you know, there's really something for everyone. I mean, if you want to, you know, hunt, uh, pheasants or quail or you know partridge whatever i mean there's there's areas you can do that i mean tons of awesome trout streams uh you know turkey hunting isn't you know awesome but i mean there's still plenty of opportunity for that the whitetail um scene is you know it's hit or miss but i mean a lot you know there's plenty of people who kill you know plenty of good deer here every year uh you know if you want to get out on the big water with you know lake michigan lake spirit you know you want to catch some salmon or, or lake trout or anything like that steelhead i mean yeah there's there's something for everyone man so if you ever uh want to venture up this way for sure let me know we'll get into something oh yeah and i i love i'm an avid fly fisherman so the the trout streams and people don't think about michigan when it comes to trout i know but everything that i've read is like there's some some really world-class trout fishing in michigan so. yeah yeah i mean there's uh there's there's the asable river which is probably what most people um know from from michigan but there's a stretch on the asable called the miracle mile which is just i mean i can't even think of the the statistics for for how many fish uh are in like that stretch but it's i mean it's ungodly and i mean <laughs> i mean you you want to fish that either you know probably later in the fall uh just because right. a lot of people have kind of gotten off the water and a lot of people are you know maybe spending more time uh in the woods than on the river but uh, yeah, no, I'm actually uh, heading to, to northern lower Michigan uh, next week for a little family vacation. So I'm hoping to actually get some time on the on the river to uh, do some fly fishing. So nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, Brian, I really appreciate you making some time, man. I really enjoyed speaking to you and uh, look forward to hearing from you again in the future. Yeah. as uh, Thank you again for uh, allowing me to come on. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it, man. Well, take care of yourself and we'll talk soon.
Sounds good. All right. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks again to Brian for taking some time to join me on the podcast today. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Go Hunt and Stone Glacier, as well as Wild Rivers Coffee Co. Uh, please be sure to support the companies that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, I would also like to thank 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where they're going to post only positive conservation-driven content, so you'll definitely enjoy that in your feed. Uh, so again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you liked the episode. Remember, stay safe out there, and conservation starts with you.